Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 26, Following the Leader. Last week, Alexander now became king of Macedonia after eliminating all potential rivals and having some political enemies disposed of. Alexander turned his attention south to the city-states of Greece. He marched south and was immediately blocked by the Thessalians, and after some deft maneuvering, was able to find a way around the forces blocking him and forced him to submit. With his first domino now set in motion, the rest of the city-states in Greece began sending messengers to the young king, acknowledging him as king and as the hegemon of the League of Corinth. After some grumbling, Athens and Thebes also sent their acknowledgments as well. Satisfied with the results, Alexander visited the oracle at Delphi and promptly began committing a litany of religious sacrileges as he forced the oracle to give him his prophecy in her off-season. Like I said in the last episode, whether you believe it or not, there may have been a possibility of Alexander walking away from the incident believing he was invincible. Alexander headed back home to Macedonia in late 336 BC and spent the winter at home. When in early 335 BC, news of rebellious Thracian tribes to the north made its way to Alexander. He promptly gathered his army and marched them out, determined to end this little rebellion as swiftly as possible. So now, the whole of Greece watched as Alexander marched his army into Thrace all interested in seeing just how well Alexander would fare as Stratigos of the entire Macedonian army. Alexander began the campaign by heading out to Amphipolis, where the army he was going to lead began to muster. Alexander met in business in this campaign and amassed a force of around 23,000 men, with 20,000 infantry and 3,000 companion cavalry. Upon marching into the region of Thrace, it wouldn't take long till Alexander first met some opposition. Alexander and his forces encountered a group of Thracians occupying high ground at the pass of the Hemus Mountains, which are now the modern-day Balkan Mountains. Obi-Wan Kenobi would have approved. It seemed the Thracians had learnt well in their conflicts against the Macedonians in the past. The Thracian position was intentionally chosen to neutralize the Macedonians' army's greatest weapon, its pike phalanx. In occupying the high ground, the Thracians then lined up behind a wagon fort. Alexander realized quickly just what his enemies planned to do. As the formed-up infantry would begin their ascent up the mountain, the Thracian wagons would be rolled down towards them at high speeds. This served two purposes. Firstly, it would disrupt the formation of the phalanx, and secondly, it would cause chaos as men were undoubtedly going to be run over by the wagons giving the Thracians the perfect time to attack as the Macedonian formation was broken and in disarray. Here we get our first glimpse of Alexander's strategic mind. Not only did he instantly recognize the Thracian plan, but he was able to quickly devise a counter and explain it to his men. The pike phalanx was in the center. Alexander had the hypaspis, the elite infantry unit on the left, and archers and slingers to the right. He would follow with his cavalry split on both sides. As they began their march upwards, the Thracians were no doubt excited to see Alexander march into their trap. The Thracians sent their wagons down the path. 
the wagons building up speed and momentum. Suddenly, the phalanx began to break ranks, forming holes in their lines for the wagons to pass through. And apparently, for those who could not get out of the way, they would lay on the ground with their shields up in unison. Alexander's counter to the Thracian ploy was a significant success, and not a single man was injured or killed. Now, things were looking in the Macedonians' favor. The ranged unit of Alexander's forces moved up, and in front of the center began to let the arrows and rocks fly free. The army took this time to form up back into proper order, and after the barrage of arrows and rocks had peppered their opponents, the main force of the Macedonians hit their enemy. In a straight-up fight against the Macedonians, the Thracians had no chance. Their weapons and armors were miles ahead, and the cohesiveness of the army had achieved over years of drills and war had no equal in the tribes beyond the frontier. The fighting did not take long. The Macedonians quickly overcame their enemy, killing over a thousand men as the rest of the warriors ran away. The Macedonians captured some women and children, enslaved them, and had them sent back to Macedonia. Phase 1 was a success. It's important to note that the straightforward battle for the Macedonians was not anything special, but what impressed the army more than anything else was Alexander's quick thinking with the wagons. The army could be led by anyone with decent generalship, and it would do well, but what was important was for the army's confidence to develop in Alexander. The young king's display of thinking on his feet and successfully guiding his men through a potential perilous situation was a good start. The army continued its march into Thracian territory, reaching the domain of the Triballi. If you'll recall, the Triballi were the Thracian forces Philip had encountered after defeating a Scythian king, who had originally asked for Philip for aid against the rival foe, and in return would make Philip his heir. It was this group that Philip had been ambushed by on his return march to Macedonia, when he was stabbed through the thigh with a spear so deeply killed the horse he was riding on. The wound left Philip with a permanent limp for the rest of his life, not that it would be much longer in hindsight. The chief of the Triballi had sent scouts ahead to watch the Macedonians since they began their campaign. Quickly, the chief, realizing he would have to fight, sent away most of his population onto an island on the Danube River. Alexander began to follow after them, noticing their movement. But another Triballi force had appeared behind Alexander. The king decided to pause on the following the force, and met the force that appeared behind him. The Macedonian cavalry charged out, surprising the Triballi forces that had begun to set up camp. They began to retreat into a dense forest of trees. Alexander didn't want to follow them into the forest, negating his primary weapon, the infantry. And in these forests, the Thracian fighters were especially deadly. So Alexander began to have his archers fire arrows at them incessantly for hours. Eventually, the Thracian forces could not take it anymore and attacked the Macedonians head on, which is the last mistake they would ever make. The infantry met the force head on while the cavalry flanked the Thracians on each side, and the Thracian force was annihilated, with apparently 3,000 dead Tribalis at the cost of 54 Macedonian lives. The Macedonian phalanx 
was just too powerful to face head on, and each time a Thracian force attempted to dictate the terms of battle at their level, Alexander was able to find a way to engage with the enemy on his terms. So far, the 20-year-old king was proving himself to be a very competent commander indeed. With the threat to Alexander's rear now neutralized, Alexander began to push forward again, and after a few days' march, Alexander reached the Danube River directly. Across the river lay the island the Tribali chieftain had retreated to. It was a fortified stronghold, and thick logs made up the fortress. Alexander had taken precautions earlier, and now, allied ships from the city of Byzantium had arrived. Alexander loaded the ships with infantry and began an assault on the fortress, but the tough defenders of the island held the Macedonian forces at bay. Alexander called off the attack and had the ships return to safety. Things now began to look shaky for the king. The Shabali were now being reinforced by another Thracian tribe known as the Gedai. They had reinforced the Shabali on the opposite side of the Macedonians. The island is in between both sides of the river. Despite the reinforcements, Alexander was undeterred. In fact, he saw an opportunity. Defeating the force in front of him would force the Tribali to surrender, he thought. So, Alexander had the ships and makeshift canoes created to ferry a portion of his army across the river at night. A risky move. The move paid dividends for Alexander who brought with him 5,000 infantry and 1,500 cavalry. The army then began to move towards the enemy camp, covered by the large grain fields. Just after dawn, Alexander's forces began the charge. The infantry moving forward in unison while Alexander led the cavalry charge. This caught the enemy Thracians by surprise, who rushed out to meet the king. Like the Jabali on the other side of the river, who now lay dead, in a straight-up conflict, the Macedonians had the edge, and a repeat of what happened before, the cavalry attacked the flanks while the infantry smashed up the middle, crushing the army, and causing the remainder of the foe to flee to the nearest town. They would get no relief, though, as the Macedonian cavalry chased the retreating forces, and forced them to retreat deeper into the interior of the Balkans. Alexander now returned his cavalry back to the battle site, and the Tribali chieftain had made Alexander's prediction come true, and he had surrendered to the Macedonians. This surrender came at the same time as an envoy of Celts came to seek the king's friendship. I'm sure news had spread throughout the region that Alexander was in town and had already begun his string of victories against all those who fought against him. Alexander was delighted that the Celts had come to ask him for friendship. In an hilarious exchange, Alexander asked the Celts what they were most afraid of, hoping the answer would be him. The Celts responded seriously that their biggest fear was that the sky would fall down on top of them. Alexander was not too thrilled with their answer, but he pledged friendship, and the Celts went on their way and Alexander probably called the Celts stupid in his head for not fearing the great and almighty Alexander. With this, Alexander now began to leave Thrace, feeling confident in his display of force against the Thracians. 
Phase 2 was now successful. Alexander began to march his army into Illyrian territory. There, he went to the kingdom of the Agrianians, where the king, Langarus, was allied to the Macedonians. Here, Alexander found out that three rulers in Illyria had gone into revolt against him. Like the southern city-states of Greece, the Illyrian tribes had submitted to Philip, and now that he was dead, they saw their chance at freedom. Langarus went to deal with one of the revolting leaders, leaving Alexander to deal with the other two. Alexander moved his army to face his enemy, the first one available to him, Clytus. Alexander moved his army into the region known as Pelium. The city was a fortified stronghold and well defended. The area that Alexander now occupied was a flat plain, with a river to his right side, the stronghold in front of him. To his left, the plain began to ascend upwards. Alexander began to drag his siege engines forward, ready to engage with the strong defensive walls. But it was here that Alexander would now face his biggest challenge yet as king. The next day, the other Illyrian tribe that had revolted had come to the assistance of Clytus. The reinforcing army was led by the other ruler in Illyria who had revolted, Glaucius, and his army had just now effectively pinned down the Macedonians. Alexander was now surrounded on three sides. The army led by Glaucius led to Alexander's left side and rear, occupying a high ground, while the fortified stronghold of Clytus now lay in front of him, with the Apsis River to his right. The Macedonians were now in a very tight position. Alexander's first choice was to send his baggage train under a mounted guard led by the general Philotas, the son of Parmenian, to forage the surrounding area. Glaucius saw an opportunity to attack this force and nearly cut them off from the main Macedonian army. Alexander acted swiftly, leading a small group of men to attack Glaucius and repelled them back towards his strong position at the top of the hill. Repelling Glaucius's forces did not change the underlying fact that the problem the Macedonian army now faced was that they were surrounded and pinned down. The enemy forces could now wait out the Macedonian army until their supplies ran out and attack them, or, if the Macedonians retreated back through the narrow valley or across the river, they would be hotly contested and the Macedonians would suffer many casualties in the attempt. And even if the Macedonian army survived that, Alexander's reputation would be severely damaged, and many others would take that opportunity during Macedonia's weakness to free themselves of Macedonian control. Alexander would need to find a way out of the situation, with the army intact and his reputation unharmed. So, what would Alexander do now? In a method only Alexander himself could come up with, he decided to intimidate his enemy, despite the fact that he was surrounded. Alexander formed up his army and began putting his army through parade drills, marching in lockstep. The phalanx, accompanied by the cavalry on the wings, began marching forwards, backwards, left, and right, all in perfect sync. 
The display of prowess by the Macedonians was further emphasized by the lack of noise they made. These drills were being conducted in silence, with only hand signals being made to dictate orders. It must have been an unnerving sight. These Illyrian tribes fought in close order, but nothing resembling the cohesive fighting style of the Greek city-states, and certainly not the Macedonian phalanx. Imagine being one of these tribesmen, watching from atop the hill, seeing the enemy army parade around in full organization, watching them move up, form up, and never making a mistake, and never making a sound. The only noise you hear is the sound of the army's marching footsteps. It was a good psychological attack. Then, suddenly, Alexander made a signal, and the infantry began rattling the sarissas onto their shields, making loud war cries. Alexander's cavalry on his left wing suddenly charged up the hill at the forces under Glaucius. The sudden noise and cavalry charge had the desired effect. The Illyrian tribes on the hill broke and fled, retreating back into the interior of Illyria. Now, Alexander had his chance. He immediately began marching his army towards a ford in the river to cross to the other side. He sent his elite infantry unit across first, and then his pike phalanx. Clytus, the Illyrian chief that had retreated into a stronghold, and Glaucius, who had managed to reorganize a part of his army, realized the Macedonians would be able to escape. In an attempt to strike a blow against the Macedonian army, they led their forces to attack the crossing infantry units. Alexander, along with his light infantry and companion cavalry, held out the forces long enough for the retreat. Alexander was outnumbered now, but his army on the other side began using their catapults to hit the enemy. It makes me wonder if there was an officer present at Philip's defeat against Onomarcos 18 years ago. It's a method reminiscent of Philip's first defeat when they were led into a narrow path and had catapults rain projectiles down on them. The sudden barrage had the desired effect, and the Illyrians retreated away, allowing Alexander and the rest of his army to make the crossing of the river. And this was a stunning success for Alexander. He had managed to get his entire army across the river without a single death. The Macedonian army marched further away from the river and began to encamp. Alexander, being Alexander, was not satisfied with this outcome, though. He sent scouts ahead to martyr Glaucius and Clytus, and after three days, they returned to the Macedonian camp with interesting news. The Illyrians believed Alexander had fled, and why wouldn't you think that? They had just extricated themselves from a very tight situation. Not only did the Illyrians believe the Macedonians were gone, but they were camped out in disarray. They had no sentries to watch for approaching enemies. This was welcome news to Alexander, who immediately began planning. Alexander decided on a night attack, bringing with him a mobile strike force of cavalry, some light infantry, and archers. Then, under cover of night, the Macedonian version of the special forces began their attack. The Illyrians were massacred. 
The unprepared Delirians had no time to react, with many being killed in their tents. And when they woke up and began fleeing, they were cut down by the cavalry and ranged missiles. The retreating Illyrians fled from the entire area, and Clytus burned down a stronghold and fled into Glaucus's territory. Satisfied with this result, Alexander moved up to meet up with Langaris, who had defeated his foe. Despite successfully putting down the Illyrian and Thracian revolts, Langaris had bad news for Alexander. Rumors had spread in Greece that Alexander had died in Thrace. 100 points anyone who can guess who spread that rumor. That's right. Demosthenes was at it again. Many city-states began to revolt against Macedonia at the news of Alexander's death. Thebes, in particular, relished the news. Unlike Athens, Thebes had a Macedonian garrison installed in their city after the defeat at Chaeronea. The news that Alexander was dead sparked a major rebellion in Thebes, and the commanding Macedonian officers in Thebes were murdered. Alexander knew this was a problem that had to be dealt with swiftly, and immediately began his march south at the head of his 23,000-strong army. Phase 3 was complete, but it seemed Phase 4 would be his toughest challenge yet. We'll leave it there for now, with Alexander on the march to end the rebellions that were popping up in Greece. Before I wrap up, I just want to say that Alexander's campaign in the Balkans may have not been a spectacular display of tactics, but what it did accomplish was the army's trust in their new king. They now knew that they were being led by a commander who knew what he was doing, and in moments of panic, that Alexander could come up with a plan to avoid the worst-case situations, like avoiding the rolling wagons or finding a way out of the encirclement when boxed in by the Illyrians. The army will only fall deeper into Alexander's control as he leads them to victory after victory. But this initial campaign was the moment when they developed their trust in him, unquestioningly, I think. During the campaign, they knew he was his father's son. And like Philip before him, Alexander would lead his army to victory. Okay, now we'll actually leave it here, for now. And as always, I have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history. And you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. Follow me on Twitter at HistoryPinpoint, and you can find me on Facebook. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.